The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. Brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. With special guest, pastor, and teacher, Jim Kerwin. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Jim Kerwin from Finest of the Wheat Teaching Fellowship, filling in for the recharging Ray and Alexandra Greenlee. They will be back next week on the air. But meanwhile, uh, we are covering our last day of the subject, what's the context? Basically looking at a, uh, a basic overview of hermeneutics and what it means to read and study and share the scriptures in context, in the historical context, in contextual context, in uh in a, in a variety of ways, things that we bring to bear. And I shared that quote from Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through, well, beginning of 4, because I want you to think about something. The very first psalm in the, in the scriptures, Psalm number 1, what's that telling us? That on top of David's worship pile, as it were, the, the most important thing, how, how am I going to start off this book of Psalm, put together all these songs that the Lord has given me? For David, reading the scriptures was an act of worship. And I wonder, as we come to our final exam day, and we're going to do the final exam right now, and we come to what we call Elephant Eater Day, which is when you, some of you, are going to make the commitment to reading through the scriptures I wonder just how many of you are going to step forward and say, Lord, I'm not just going to read the scriptures because you want me to. I'm not just going to read the scriptures because it's good for my spiritual health. I'm not just going to read the scriptures cover to cover annually because Pastor Jim says so, or it's good spiritual discipline. I want to be like David. I want to be reading the scriptures because it's an act of worship. Now, interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of this, I think David had to write out his own copy of the Bible in his own hand. You say, well, there's no proof of that in the Bible. Well, there's a good, strong hint based on the commandment of the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. You know, I, there's a church that I drive by. I can't even remember where it is. It's somewhere in southern Virginia. I drive past it five, six, seven times a year on out on their marquee, they never change what it says. I guess it must be the church motto. It says, training for reigning. And I don't know if I find that particular thing encouraging, but when I think about reigning, I think about this. 
Now it shall come about when he, the king that God will choose, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Like David, and in his law doth he meditate both day and night that he, the king, may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. If that was a requirement that God made for a king who was going to reign over, that he write out his own copy of the Bible and read it every day, He's not requiring that of you, which is probably a good thing because the Bible was smaller back then. But part of God's idea of a perfect ruler is someone who wrote out his own copy of the scriptures and then read it every day. So here's what we're going to do. Those of you who have had time to pray about it, think about it, make the commitment to read through the scriptures annually, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. You can call our producer, Kevin, at 877-534-0780. During the broadcast, you won't be put on the air, so don't worry if you're thinking about you'll be embarrassed. Just give him your first name and say, I'm, I'm going to make a commitment to read through the Bible annually and read cover to cover. And remember, when I say cover to cover, I don't mean just start in Genesis and keep slogging through till you get to the end. Uh, We're going to give you some Bible chart links here in just a minute. Actually, they'll be on the show notes. But, Or the other thing you can do is you can write to me. I have another computer up and running here. Write to elephanteaters at finestoftheweet.org. Or if you're a little bit fumble-fingered like I am on the keyboard, you can just shorten that to ee at finestoftheweet.org. And just say... Brother Jim, I'm making the commitment to read through the scriptures on a regular basis. Now, when today's show notes go up, there's going to be a link to a page. It'll actually be uh, the Navigators Organization. It will have three links to three different kinds of uh, Bible reading charts. And there's one or two of them where if you print them out back to back and fold them over, they'll fit right in your Bible. In addition, in the show notes there's going to be a link to a podcast that I did almost seven years ago. It's called, Are You Fulfilling Bible Prophecy? And while I won't go into the content of the message there, there's a long uh, show notes involved with that. And within the show notes, there's six or seven other links that will take you to other places with different kinds of Bible reading charts. Find the one that suits you best and start with that. Um, You may even find, if you flip to the back of your Bible, that there's already a Bible reading chart there. There's only one thing wrong with these Bible reading charts, and that is that they usually start on January 1st. I'm not asking you to start there and catch up. My policy, my encouragement, my suggestion is that you just start today and pick it up. Yes, you may be in the middle of a couple of books when you start, but you know, if you make that annual commitment, you'll just keep coming back around, and from then on, it will be a a full read-through. One thing about the, the main link that I'm putting in the show notes today is 
I hope the navigators don't mind me saying this because I admire them actually for this thought. They're cheater sheets. What do I mean by cheater sheets? Well, they assume that you have a very busy life and that it's entirely possible that you may miss a day of reading here and there. They have set their charts up so that you can miss, I think, up to five days a month and still be on schedule because they only schedule 25 days of reading in a month. So there's a little bit of a little skosh of room, especially when you uh, are setting up the habit and may miss a day. So that's it. If you're going to make that commitment to Jesus and say, yes, Lord, I want to worship you like David did by reading through the Bible every year and reading it every day, then you call Kevin, 877-534-0780, or you can write to me at ee at finestoftheweet.org. And if the uh, the email is working, I should be able to see that email come in and just perhaps mention it on the air. Only first names, that's that's all right. All right, let's get to today's... Oh, wait, there's one other thing. Somebody did write in yesterday. We actually talked today, someone I'd never met before, and we were talking about this kind of ministry. He, he called this teaching, and he meant it in a good way. He said it's sober and mature. And I hope both of those things are true. You know, not everything is fluff and whipped cream. There's solid food that needs to be given to God's people, and it needs to be mature. You, if it causes you to have to do some, some chewing with your teeth, good. That's why God gave you your adult teeth, so you could chew. You need that spiritually. But this is what we teach when we go to Latin America and to Romania. This is, well, this upcoming Peru trip, if the Lord provides for it, this is the kind of foundation that we put under these, under the feet, under the hearts, under the minds of these young leaders, men and women, because we want them to start out deep in the scriptures. You know, they're, they're good at soul winning, they're energetic, they just have never had, and probably because of their economic and educational situation, they may never have an opportunity to go to Bible college So we essentially take the Bible college to them for a couple of days every year and get them into the basics, give them a really good foundation. So when you're donating to a trip like that on Finest of the Wheat, and you'll see a link for that in all the show notes every every day this week, that's what you're contributing to. You're, You're contributing to us being able to give them these classes without cost to them unless their particular church or denomination charges them a little bit for their lunch or so forth. And very basic in terms of uh, there's no catering. They usually kill a chicken or two uh, or three that morning after I get there and cook them up in the outside kitchen, and then they, they serve them in sauce with rice, and on we go. So that's what you're contributing to, this kind of teaching for those kind of leaders who are already fruitful in the kingdom. Well, let's get into our subject. Remember yesterday we finished up talking about the throne room scene in Isaiah 6, and we saw how all of that opens up when we understand that there are references to Leviticus, there are references to Chronicles, and I hope as you as you went through that study that you said, my goodness, I've never seen anything 
like this in there. I've never seen how it tied together so many scriptures. If you think that one was good, wait till I share with you today about Jesus' first sermon. That's the one that he preached in Luke chapter 4. You can turn there. This is a classic example of another way to study and be certain you're getting things in context. Here's the thing. When someone, either speaking or writing, quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, that's your cue to go back and begin to uh, look at the quoted verse or the quoted passage in context. In other words, you don't just go back and snap, snag one verse and say, oh, well, that's what that's all about. No, you go back and you look at the whole thing. There's a reason for that. And I never found a good, proper, uh, scholarly, academic term for this, so I just made one up. I call it a mnemonic trigger or a memory trigger. What do I mean by that? Um, I will try not to cause you much pain, but let me just sing uh, just two measures. If I sing, oh, say, can you see, I can stop there. And your mind, if you're an American or if you're, you're a citizen, uh, you, your mind can fill in that entire thing. I gave you five words, and you can fill in the rest of the first verse and maybe some of the other verses. I just gave you a trigger. Or for our lovely neighbors to the north, I, could, uh, I wouldn't do this because I respect you too, too much, but if I said, Oh, Canada... The same thing would happen to them. They might not know anything about the, the Star-Spangled Banner, but that's their national anthem. Just those two words and the whole rest of that song will come to their mind because it's been part of their culture for so long. Or, praise God, I'm not going to sing anymore. I could say, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And in your mind, you're thinking that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. All right, I bring all that up, the mnemonic trigger, because when the Bible's quoted, especially by Jesus, but not exclusively, a lot of times all that's meant to be is a, is a hook, a trigger for Jews who were listening, Jews who had memorized great portions of the whole Testament, and to get their minds involved in a... A historical passage, a prophetic passage, so that they could chew on what was going on and, and compare it to what Jesus was teaching and see how it related. Now, Jesus was preaching before this sermon in Luke chapter 4 comes up, but all we know about it is basically something like Mark one fifteen, where Jesus was preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Kind of a, a summary of his, te- of his teaching and preaching. But Luke brings us right into the first recorded, we don't know, maybe it wasn't Jesus' first sermon, but it's his first recorded sermon in Luke 4, 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I wish we had time. My uh, strong preference when I teach is to teach expositionally, just go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter so we get the whole thing in context. Our radio time doesn't allow us that luxury. But if you're reading through this, Jesus has just been baptized by John in water, and the Holy Spirit has come upon him. He's about to go into the wilderness in verses 1 and 2. Now watch what happens without me going into this in great detail. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan, and he went out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now there's all this time that Jesus is in the desert. How long? Forty days. All right. Think about this, those of you who are preaching, sharing about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, because we don't warn people, all right? When people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, generally speaking, I won't say it's true 100% of the time, but generally speaking, you are going to come to a place where there is immediate strong testing and tempting because of that very encounter with God, just like with Jesus, the enemy is going to come and see if he can put a stop to it. So we don't get a good enough job warning people that are seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit to buckle their seatbelts as soon as they get the blessing because there could be more on the other end. But notice he goes into the desert full of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 14, after all the temptation, after he's passed through, after he's passed the test, He comes back, in verse 14, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he begins teaching in their synagogues. By the way, speaking of that testing, remember that there's a test today. Let's do it right now. Pop quiz. Pop quiz that you've been warned about for four days. There are two things that you need to remember from this week on hermeneutics. What's the first one? The first one is a question that you have to ask when you come to the text to read it. And the answer is, what's what's the question? What is the context? The text within the context within the text, the context in history, language, culture, all the rest. Good. What's the second thing that we have to know? The second thing we have to know is that the entire Bible is the context that we ultimately need to, to know and appreciate to see how all of these smaller things fit together with what God's done. So, again, I want to just remind you that the reason you're reading is so that you can, the whole Bible is so that you can read in any context. And remember, if you've made this commitment, you call Kevin, 877-534-0780. All right, so he comes back, he begins the teaching, he comes to the synagogue in Nazareth, couple of quick points. Verse 16. As his custom was, he entered into the Sabbath. He entered into the synagogue. I hope it's your custom to continue to fellowship with the saints on a regular basis, not just Sundays, though that's a good start. And then, same verse, verse 16. He stood up to read. He didn't come to church to be a spectator. He didn't come to church to soak it all in. He came to church to take part in ministry if God gave him an opportunity, and I hope you are the same way. And then he was offered the opportunity to open the book. Now it says book, but we know that this is before the era of what we would call books with pages. He opened the scroll, in a scroll that didn't have chapters, managed to know the scriptures well enough so that he could turn through what we would call 60 chapters to get to the portion of Isaiah where he was going to read, and he was reading in Isaiah 61. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. So Jesus knew the scriptures well. If Jesus needed to know the scriptures well, do you have any less need? So then he he reads the passage and he sits down. 
That means he's preparing to teach. I know that's the opposite from how we do it, but that's the culture. Their all eyes were fixed on him as a result of that. And he ends the session by saying, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, what scripture is he talking about? Let me read it to you in, let's see, we'll start with verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he sits down. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, what's the acceptable year of the Lord? What does that mean? Well, in the Greek, the word acceptable is dektos. Not that that's so important, except that your translation may say favorable, appropriate, uh, welcome, pleasing. All of those sort of bring across the idea behind dektos. And I just bring that up because we're going to see that word pop up in a couple of important places. As I said, when you find somebody quoting the Old Testament, a lot of times it says a mnemonic trigger. Jesus is doing that here because the people in the, the congregation would have been surprised about where he stopped. We'll see that in Isaiah 61 in just a second. Uh, another classic example, I'm not going to touch it. I don't have time other than just to point it out to you. On the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm starts. If you go to Psalm 22, as they would have in their mind, you will find many of the scenes from the crucifixion being played out prophetically. People take that and say, oh, well, Jesus was saying that God had forsaken him. I'm not here to argue that one way or the other. I'm just saying that what Jesus may have been doing with as much energy as he could muster is give out a mnemonic trigger that would have made people stop and think about that psalm. Remember, it's much easier to remember lyrics to, to music than it is to just do straight memory work. And to them, the psalms are set to music. They know the tunes. So he gives that out, and in their minds, they could play through that entire psalm. You ought to read it sometime. All right, just so we know, by the time of Jesus, there were two translations of the Old Testament. There was the original Hebrew, and then around 200 B.C., a group of Jewish scholars, uh, tradition says there were 70 of them, got together and translated from Hebrew, which was becoming a, an obscure language, into Greek, which was the common language of the area, thanks to Alexander the Great's conquest about 125 years before they started this translation. And many, many of the quotes in the New Testament are coming from that Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with the Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, that's sort of the, our, our base. It's our foundation. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament is from the Hebrew. It's not entirely perfect, but it's there, and it was used, and it made the Old Testament accessible first to Jews who grew up outside of Palestine and maybe didn't know Hebrew and Aramaic as well, and then quickly made it available to Greeks, Greek-speaking, first the, the God-fearers who would come to the synagogues but hadn't been born Jewish, and then to Christian converts. So in Psalm 61, I'm sorry, not Psalm 61, Isaiah 61, and I don't have my own Bible here. I didn't manage to bring it to the studio, so I have borrowed 
Uh, I borrowed Alexandra's copy, and it so happens to be it's a King James. Let me read the passage to you there. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, unto the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, full stop, and Jesus closes the book. But we're going to go on. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and there in the Greek Old Testament, it says dektos, the dektos year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So there's a couple of things here. If you read this passage and you think about it, there's two things that are being put next to each other, or if you want to use a big word, they're being juxtaposed. I know another big word too. It's delicatessen. See, aren't you impressed? All right. The favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. There's God's pointing out a year and he's pointing out a day. We still don't know what the favorable year of the Lord is. We think we know what the day of vengeance of our God is. What is that day of vengeance? Well, I believe, I, I say I used to read that and think, well, okay, that's the coming judgment of God. But the more I read through that passage over the years, I thought, you know, this is like any other, unlike any other judgment passage I've come to, because usually when God begins to talk about the day of judgment, there's woe and mourning and lamentation and weeping and gnashing of teeth and punishment and flames and all the rest of that. And here it says the, you know, it talks about this judgment, and then it goes on and, and talks about to comfort those who mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion and give them beauty for ashes and so forth. That is so odd if you compare that with any other judgment passage. You know why? And this is why Jesus stopped there. He did not read that phrase because that prophetically speaks to the day of vengeance of our God when God put the punishment for our sins on his son Jesus on the cross. And right after that day of vengeance, then all of a sudden there is comfort for those who mourn, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, etc., etc. Okay, now that's the, that's the day of vengeance of our God. What about the year? That still hasn't been explained. The people who heard Jesus understood it, I want you to understand it and to see that it takes a, a full-orbed wading into the Old Testament and continually going through it to be able to see things like this. In Leviticus 25, isn't it interesting to understand each of these passages? We've had to go into Leviticus. Yesterday, we had to go into 13 and mention 14. Today, we're going into Leviticus 25. God says that when you come into the land, this is verse 23 in Leviticus 25, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. He's talking about the inheritance that they receive in Canaan, in the promised land. For the land is mine, and you are but aliens and sojourners in it. Then the chapter, chapter 25, speaks about eight special years in God's calendar. Happened every half a century. There were eight special years now, you know that there's a Sabbath day. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. 
in it you shall not do any work and so forth and then the seventh day is a number of completion it's a number of rest it's a number of deliverance from slavery when jesus talks about the the formula for forgiveness peter says wow does that mean i have to forgive my brother seven times and jesus says nope 70 times seven and that didn't mean count up to, to 490 and then quit. He was just basically saying you're to live with an attitude of, of forgiveness. But it was also a, uh, a number that every Hebrew slave looked forward to in Israel. You know, back then there wasn't such a thing as crushing uh, educational debt, uh, school loans. There wasn't such a thing as... Um, credit card debt that you couldn't get out of. If you were in that kind of debt, they just sold you and your wife and your kids, but only for seven years if you were a Hebrew so that you could work some of that off. Exodus 22.1, for, for instance, says that a Hebrew slave goes free at the end of the seventh year. So God is keeping that in mind. So here you go, the seventh year, the 14th year, the 21st year, the 28th year, the 35th year, I hope I don't blow this, the 42nd year, and the 49th year, every seven years for 49 years, there's a Sabbath year where all those who have been sold into slavery to, to pay their debts are set free. Now, another thing that happened when you were sold is that the rights to your land were sold, your inheritance from God. And at the end of that seven years, you did not get that land back. You didn't have the rights to it. It was still technically yours, but not available to you. Now, what happens if you have no means of growing crops, of raising cattle, of harvesting fruit? Chances are good you're going to go right back into debt and into slavery again. But after the 49th year, and this is going to sound like um, a, a dull moment in math, there's the 50th year, and the 50th year was special because it was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, not only were you set free from your slavery, but your inheritance, that which God had originally given your family many generations back, was restored to you, not just your freedom, but your inheritance, the land you could you could then become fruitful once again. And that land goes back to the people that God said because he has established this thing. The land is mine. It belongs to me. You'll do with it what I tell you to do. And the year of Jubilee, is Jubilee comes from a, a Hebrew word, Yobel. And uh, so Yobelie, uh, you sort of hear the sound of a, Ara, Yobel, in the whole thing. You find that in this word for the blowing of a ram's horn is found in Leviticus 25 here. That's how everybody knows that this glorious 50th year has started. It appears in Leviticus 27 three times and once in Numbers, another time in Exodus. And then there's, um, uh, there's some story in, in Joshua, something about people marching around a city and blowing trumpets and the walls falling down. That word appears six times in that particular chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 6. So what are the spiritual implications of the 7 and the 50? Well, the 7 year is like forgiveness. It's like salvation. There's release. 
you, you, you can experience this euphoria of freedom, but your original inheritance from God isn't restored. But the 50th year, and remember this is what Jesus is talking about, the dektos year of God. This is what he's declaring as the gospel. God's original inheritance that he gave us is restored. And spiritually, the implication is that when God, the Holy Spirit, blows the trumpet, there's not just forgiveness for sins, but there's a deliverance from sin. Now, I don't want to get into all the theology of that. I know Ray and Alexander have covered this in great detail uh, over the past months. But just let me give you two verses to chew on as we work through this message of Jesus. Not anything to do with this message. Two things are said about Jesus. One is said by the angel who spoke to Joseph, Mary's husband, in the dream in Matthew chapter 1. He says, you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, plural. And the scriptures are always really clear when it's talking about sins as something you commit and sin, that nature that's within then John the Baptist in the in the book in the Gospel of John, when he sees Jesus coming back from the wilderness, and that's when Jesus appears in that gospel, he points and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you hear the difference? The angel says, Call him Jesus, he's going to save his people from their sins. John the Baptist sees something deeper and he says, Here's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to be the Christ. He's going to be the one who comes in in the person of the Holy Spirit and radically change, give that pure heart that the prophets talked about, that new heart, that heart free from sin. Now, all of that's restored in the gospel, everything that we originally had in the garden, except death is still working. So that isn't much of a, uh, a full jubilee, a deliverance, is it? As in Adam, all die. And that will be true. Well, it'll be true till Jesus comes back. Now, if you think about the calendar, if you think about a century, you get seven sevens, and then you get a 50th. And then you get starting with year 57, year 64, and so forth, on through to year 99, you get another seven years. And then what do you have at the end of that century? A second 50th. You get a second year of Jubilee. Now, notice how, as you're reading through the New Testament, this idea of a trumpet keeps coming up. Matthew 24, 30 to 31, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And I, I'm leaving some parts out just for the sake of time and space on the slide. With a great trumpet. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The Lord himself, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the trumpet of God. And of course the dead in Christ shall be raised. Um, why a trumpet? Why announce all this with a trumpet? What is there about a trumpet? You have to go back to the year of Jubilee and realize that that's the trumpet it's talking about. So everything restored except deliverance from death 
by Jesus' work and by his working in us. And then that final trumpet, that final yobel, that final trumpet of jubilee, and then even death is done away with. Interesting word, by the way, uh, for trumpet in, in the Greek. It's salpinx, or in the plural be salpingus. Revelation 1.10, John says, I heard, of, I heard behind me a loud voice, a voice like the sound of a salpinx, a trumpet. It's the same word in Matthew 24 in that passage that we just read, and in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and in the passage in 1 Thessalonians. And in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, when it's talking about the Jubilee trumpet, it's the same word. It's salpinx. So the idea is there. And here, let's think about the, the day, the year of the Lord and today. Thus saith the Lord, I'm reading from Isaiah 49, 8, in a favorable time, dektas, I have heard, I've answered you, and in a day of salvation, I've helped you. So the year, the day, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. He's actually talking to Messiah to restore the land and to, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. And then Paul quotes that particular verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. And remember, we're still gathering all this so that we can come back to Jesus' words in his first recorded sermon in Nazareth. We urge you, he says, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And that word acceptable time there, the, the adjective, isn't just dektos. It's sort of dektos on steroids. It means especially acceptable. The, it's sort of a supercharged acceptability and, and pleasantness. It's uh, euprostikos. So you hear dektos at the end, uh, but the, the accent is different. So it's euprostikos. The especially acceptable time I listen to you uh, now, oh, it's, it's, but it's in that second phrase, now is the especially acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I mentioned that when I was in Guatemala this year, we finished up the book of Hebrews. It took us two of my visits to get through that. Wonderful time. By the way, there's somebody out there who's saying, oh, yes, but Brother Jim forgot that, that in Hebrews 12, at the beginning, it says, let us lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily besets us. So see, even, even then they were dealing with sin. No, 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 no. What is the context of that verse? In the entire book of Hebrews, there is only one sin, just one. It's the sin of unbelief, of not believing that God can bring you into his rest, and that God cannot bring you into the holiest of all. And it specifically says, let's lay aside the weight and the sin. Which sin? The one I've been talking to you about this entire epistle. That sin. Let's lay aside the weight and that sin which so easily besets us. Oh, God can't set me free from indwelling sin. It's all going to be there. No, stop it. That's the whole reason why the book of Hebrews was written, so that you could drop that unbelief, that sin, 
and run with patience the grace that set the, the race that's set before you. Hebrews three twelve through thirteen. I'm going back earlier in the in that book, but I just thought I'd bring that up because I could just hear somebody grumbling and saying, "Well, you know, well, all right, that's what that's about." Take care, brethren, that there may not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, so long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews three twelve through 13. What's the deceitfulness of sin? Have you ever asked yourself that? Well, it's sin telling you, you've lost your inheritance. You can't get it back. Only death can free you from me. That's the deceitfulness of sin. But Jesus said when he stood up, the Spirit of God is upon me. He's anointed me for all of these various blessings. And we could go into the, the physicality of the, of the healing blessings. We could go into the spiritual part of the, the description of those blessings. But in the end, the place that he stops is to preach, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. You get your inheritance back. You get back a heart free from sin. A new heart will I put within you. Not alongside the old heart. A new heart I'll put within you. A new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll take away, you see, the stony heart out of your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. That's the testimony of Jeremiah and Ezekiel as they're speaking forth prophetically about what happens when Jesus comes. Now, that hadn't happened when Jesus was in that synagogue because that day of vengeance of our God, that's the very phrase that he left out, had not yet occurred. That was still three years away. Once the day of vengeance of our God, then all of a sudden there's comfort for all those who mourn to give those who mourn beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. The, the year of jubilee has come. In fact, that's a, that's a Charles Wesley hymn that I wish we sang or at least knew more about as poetry. The year of jubilee has come. Return ye ransomed sinners home. Not just home, release from slavery, release from the penalty of sin. Returned to the inheritance that God meant for you originally. So when Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, this day of proclamation of the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of restoration, on the basis of that day of vengeance of our God, Jesus proclaims to you, dear Christian, struggling with whether or not this whole matter of uh, being free from sin is true, Jesus proclaims to you the dektos year of God, the acceptable, favorable year. God says to Satan and to sin, when I blow the yobel, when I declare jubilee, the land, the inheritance, it all goes back to the original inheritance, my people, because I say so. Now, I wasn't certain we were going to get through that uh, as in the, the allotted hour. But consider what we had to know. Here we come to Jesus in this sermon, and it, we're just given a few lines of what he read. We don't know what the, what the cultural weight of this phrase is. First of all, you have to know it's from Isaiah 61. Then you have to go back and look at the 
that at the context of what Jesus is quoting, and not only ask yourself, why did he read this? But you have to ask, why did he leave that out? And now we know why he left out that line and subsequently, because he couldn't yet say of the day of vengeance of our God, today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. But having seen it in context and understood why he quoted what he did, he omitted what he did, then we have to say, well, uh, okay, what's the acceptable year of the Lord? That means nothing to me. And then what happens is we begin, the Holy Spirit begins to open things up to us. And our study, you know, it doesn't hurt you to open up a book and, and find out acceptable year of the Lord, see year of Jubilee, and then go and study that and go, oh my goodness, what is going on here? This is such a great blessing. Is that what Jesus was talking about there in Nazareth? He was saying, with my kingdom, with what I'm preaching, comes release, not just from sins, but release from everything I lost. You know, another Wesley hymn, in him, that is in Christ, in him the tribes of Adam uh, boast more blessings than their father lost. That is to say, Jesus gives us back even more than what Adam lost there in the garden. And notice it says Adam. If we ever get into, if we ever have an opportunity to do hermeneutics 2, where we begin woman in the kingdom of God 1. Sisters, I think you're going to be sending me bouquets of flowers. Uh, I don't think there's any I'm allergic to. But uh, this is really exciting stuff, especially in Latin America, where there's just woven into the culture far more than in ours, prejudice against women uh, and sort of a, a belittling what they would call, uh, the, the verb in Spanish is menospreciar, to sort of depreciate, to, to just count somebody as not worth very much. This is just built, and I'm not just saying this as me, I'm talking about men of God who come from that land who tell me that's exactly the case. This is the message that needs to be heard. But anyhow, it's in Adam all die, not in Eve. Jesus had to come back as the second Adam, not as the second Eve. And um, we could go through just Paul's passages on that. How do these things get opened up to you as you read? Well, like we were talking about the first day, you have to start depositing things in your heart. The way you do that is you begin to read. As we sit here, uh, I expected to hear the producer talk in my ear and say, Sister Karen called and said she's made the commitment to read through the scriptures. Or Brother John called and said he's partway through and he's going to be finishing by the end of the year. That would be music to my ears. And if I had you know, hesitated for a second, I would have told you it was because Kevin was talking to me. You know what? Except for the brother who wrote me yesterday... No one called in saying, I read the Bible on a regular basis. And I'm going to be open-minded and hope that's just because not, not everybody who's a Christian listens to this broadcast and they didn't hear, and there's regular Bible readers. I had dinner with two strong regular Bible readers this past Wednesday. I'm going to be having dinner tonight with another person. They're all from Bastional Prayer Chapel. But those people are prayer readers. In fact, um, we're not in any kind of a competition to who can read how many times, but I'd be, I would not be surprised to find out that people here have read the Bible far more than even I have, because it's that important to them. I know there was a, a period for years where they would take January apart 
fast for the entire month and commit to reading through the Bible just in January. So there's this deep commitment there. I pray that as a part of your worship, like David, you would have your own copy and read through it every year. Just so God can bring things like this out as you're studying, as you ask that Bible teacher who lives here in the capital area, what does this mean? What you know, Have you ever stopped and asked the Holy Spirit and said, what's the acceptable year of the Lord? I don't understand. What's Jesus saying? The Lord can quicken things to your mind, but they have to sort of be in your mind to begin with when it comes to reading through the scriptures. I can remember, I meant to tell this story on Monday. We just ran out of time. I was three years old in the Lord. In fact, it was right around my third birthday. At that point, my residence was in California, but I had driven all the way across the country to upstate New York where I had been born. I wanted to uh, just visit my old stomping grounds. I'd moved away six or seven years before. Basically spent the summer there but uh, during college break. And I left my concordance in California. I was sitting on the porch of a friend there with my Bible, praying. And I said, oh, Lord, I really want to learn how to pray. And I know, I know there's a, a passage uh, or, or two in the book of Luke, or somewhere in the New Testament, I don't, think, I don't even think I knew it was in the book of Luke, that where Jesus, or the, the, they come to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. And uh, Lord, I really wish I knew where that was. And as I was sitting there quietly, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart. And he said, just this, Luke 11 and Luke 18. And I thought, uh, right. I wasn't even certain that Luke had 18 chapters. Actually, it has 24. But remember, I was just three years old in the Lord. I was just finishing up my third pass through the, the New Testament and the Old Testament at that point in time. Long, long time ago. We're talking 1971. And so, somewhat tentatively, I opened my Bible to Luke 11.1. 1, and there is that passage where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples to pray. And I began to, I was just amazed. I said, oh, thank you, Lord. And I spent, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, just kind of reading and pouring over the first dozen verses or so of that, that chapter. And then I thought, oh, wow. What if there's something in Luke 18 also? So with some fear and trepidation, I flipped the pages to Luke 18, and there's a whole other section on prayer. You know, the, the widow and the unjust judge and the, the passages that come immediately after that. And I thought, oh, Lord, thank you so much. You were able to tell me right where that was. I didn't have it memorized. I just remembered somewhere that I had read that and you took me right to it. And I'm not saying that the Lord will do that for you. Maybe he'll do something even better. I don't know. Why could he do that? Because that was in my heart. I had read it. I had deposited it. And he was able to pull that out and be merciful and teach me something about prayer. And teach me something about Bible reading, as it turns out. So there it is. We're done with our week. Some of you are saying, hallelujah, I'm done with that. Some of you are challenged Perhaps not challenged enough to call in, but I hope this works on you and you realize what a need there is to be able to read through the scriptures cover to cover annually in order to saturate in God's word. Thy word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. 
Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. Or the words of Jesus, search the scriptures. Because in them you think you have eternal life. They're what testify of me, and you won't come to me that you might have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to share about context with the Pilgrim's Progress audience. Lord, I ask that those who have been hesitant, those who have been fearful about making a commitment to read will be emboldened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, yes, by the grace of God, I'm going to do this. They'll count the cost, make the commitment, and jump in and start getting blessed and start worshiping in the way that David worshiped in that first psalm. Then, Lord, for those who are reading, I ask that you would encourage them in that and that you would begin to help them pass the barriers of chapters and verses and that you would begin to, as they, as they pray and ask the Holy Spirit, their teacher, for help, that they would be brought into truth by the Holy Spirit, that he would begin to compare one thing with another and bless them. Amen. Now, may the Lord bless you as you read his word, especially those of you who are going to read it cover to cover. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I've had the pleasure of being your teacher this week. My name is Jim Kerwin from Finest of the Wheat Teaching Fellowship, and I hope to hear back from you at ee at finestofthewheat.org. Blessings. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling to present you blameless before the presence of